Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. As we saw, and as you can verify when you look up into the sky tonight, there's objects out there and there's space. That's basically what the world consists of. And the two dimensions are within you. And humans have become lost in one. So we are here to realize that dimension. Cannot be realized in the future. It cannot be made into an object of a search because it's here now. moment you're looking for it, you create a future. Now what is future? It's a thought form. Apart from that, there is no future except as a thought form. cannot come except as now. So it's now the arising of space consciousness or the realization of space consciousness is here now. For example, it happens when you acknowledge not only the words that you hear. Acknowledge simply means pay attention. Notice. Just as noticing here, there are two dimensions just the same as when you look up into the sky at night, you will find there are two dimensions. There are the words here and there's a silent space or stillness. in which the words happen.
Welcome, everyone, to America Meditating Radio. That was our brother, Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now and the Importance of Us Being Present. Either the past is holding us hostage and the future's got us so irritated, <laughs> we just don't know if we're going to get there or not. But the question is, how do you show up right here and right at this moment? How do you show up and understanding the power in just being present? And that's going to help us to really kind of function pretty high in how we want to articulate ourselves and allow things to flow and to just feel like you're in alignment with your higher purpose. And who better to guide us into understanding what high performance is like than Dr. J.P. Pauli Fry, who's an internationally renowned thought leader on the subject of leadership performance and managing on the pressure. Well, he's a partner and co-founder of the Institute for Health and Human Potential. His firm has been named by Profit Magazine as one of the fastest growing companies, and he speaks widely around the world on performance, leadership, disruption, innovation, and entrepreneurship. JP's book, Performing on the Pressure, The Science of Doing Your Best When It Matters the Most, became a New York Times bestseller and is published in 65 countries was also named by Inc. Magazine as one of the top 10 business books of the year. He advises the U.S. Army and Navy Fortune 500 companies such as IBM, Mercedes-Benz, Goldman Sachs, and his performance coach to NFL, NBA teams, and much more. JP's work has been featured in or he has appeared on the BBC, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and so much more. So today, we are really, really excited to meet this incredible human being, Dr. J.P. Paulil Fry, to the America Meditating Radio. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure's all mine. I can't wait for you to educate me because I love to be educated, JP. Tell us a little bit about the um, in- <laughs> tell us about the Institute for Health and Human Potential and what inspired you to leave your academic career to start it. Sure. So we're a group of passionate people who really want to make a difference. The biggest thing that we look at is trying to help individuals manage those difficult moments, those difficult situations. And what's clear is that what it takes is a certain level of emotional intelligence, that ability to manage emotions under pressure, that ability to manage ourselves, our brain, our mind, in order to, as you even mentioned in the, in the opening, to be more present. And so uh, we do that work with mainly Fortune 500 companies, but as you said, you know, mentioned in the opening, a lot of different organizations, whether it be healthcare or education. But the bottom line is you know, building this EI as a skill because it's a skill you can learn in yeah. order to be higher performing, in order to lead and manage more effectively. Yeah, you know, I've often heard that fast is slow, but slow is fast. And what that means is that sometimes when we're more mindful in our thoughts, words, and actions, things actually work out versus when we're trying to get 10 things done in one minute, realizing that we have to keep going back to fix things up, to clear things up. But what was the genesis, JP, that made you move away from your academic career to actually go into EI? Was it something going on with you? Yeah, no, great question, and, and I realize I didn't really answer your, uh, your first question. I think, you know, probably I recognize that I do have an entrepreneurial bone in my body, which is to say that 
the different work that we that I was doing at the time, I realized, wow, you know, there's individuals and organizations who need this, and I'd like to kind of venture out and try to start a business on this. And so that was probably part of the genesis, I think, and, and I like the challenge of trying to grow business. So there's almost two parts here. There's the content that I'm clearly passionate about, but there's also this kind of process of starting, you know, creating a startup and, and nurturing it and, you know, getting it to a place where, you know, it employs people and, and, you know, we can make a bigger difference with it. So I think it's probably that entrepreneurial piece as much as anything. Sure, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. With the way that things are right now in the country and especially in our administration, I sometimes pause, JP, and I wonder how are those people functioning in those walls because I can intuitively sense there isn't a lot of EI going on. And I mean that with all due respect. And what I mean is a real pure sense like like the spirit is present and it's warm and it's clear and it's empathetic and it's compassionate. Would you say that, I mean, are they open? Do you think they'll ever be open to that? Or do you feel that there's a particular quality in a person to move into a way of leadership where EI is concerned? Yeah, you know, my sense is that there very much is a predominant emotion, uh, and that is fear. And unfortunately, it is driving so much of the behavior that we see. And it's not a sustainable emotion, and we can see the number of people who have kind of left the administration. It's a record number, and that's because I, I think it's just not sustainable. And unfortunately, it is a model that is being set for the whole country, and it's not a great model. And it's, it's a damaging model. So, you know, to me, I see it as fear. And what's clear is that there is fear in the country. There is fear in the world around how AI and machine learning are coming in and affecting the economy and affecting those who are most at risk. And so I, I fully understand the fear people are feeling, and it's unfortunate that it is being used, as it has for the last few years, to drive an agenda, and you know what's unfortunate is that it, you know people need something. You know, you mentioned in terms of this podcast, they they need something in this time of uncertainty. And so, you know, certainly the skill of AI is important, but but I actually feel like something like jobs retraining and getting people to feel like they have the opportunity to participate in the economy so that the, the fear, you know, won't drive their behavior, won't drive their even voting behavior. So, I mean, that's a bigger topic, clearly, but I see fear yeah. being a big part in all of this. Yeah. Is fear an emotion? Absolutely. A lower vibration? Oh, absolutely. Fear is one of the real strong emotions that that really get in our way of being our best self. It gets in the. It, it actually stimulates a certain part of our brain, which is that smaller self part of the brain, as we would say, you know, less than our best self. And it it gets in the way of our ability to think clearly, collaborate with others, be creative. I mean, it's there as an emotion that can help us when there is an acute threat. The problem is that 
you know, it's exhaustible, right? It's not sustainable. And so, you know, what, what it does is that it, it puts people not in the best position to do their best work and to find a way through the challenge that they're facing, whether it be at work or at home and our relationships, and it's exhausting. So it's really unfortunate, but, you know, it's also a great challenge. I, I hope people take this current time as, okay, how can I use this as an opportunity, grist for the mill to develop skills to manage fear? JP, the brain endures a lot of pressure where fear is concerned, and our bodies feel it as well. And, I've, and I believe all of this is coming from an experience that the soul is having. And based on whatever I'm thinking and the feelings that are emerging from those thoughts, it is determining the kind of either intensity of pressure or flow, let's just say. How can we manage the pressure that we're under now a little bit better? Sure. You know, I would define pressure as as really three criteria. Number one, it's when the outcome, think about a situation we're facing, whether it be a presentation, a job interview, a pitch to a client, a podcast, it could be almost anything. So number one, there's an importance to the outcome to us. So the first criteria is the outcome is important to us, number one. Number two, when the outcome is uncertain. So both when the outcome is important and when it's uncertain, that creates pressure in us because we feel like, oh, we need to be successful. We want to be successful. And that's great. The third is actually the more powerful part that causes pressure for us, which is that when we feel responsible for or we feel judged on the outcome, right? So we call this social appraisal in the research, but it's when we feel people are judging us based on our performance, based on the outcome we achieve. That's actually what causes us the most pressure. It turns on the chemical cascade in our brain. It's when we feel it in our body. And so, you know, understanding that definition then helps us to find kind of successful or effective strategies. Now, you know, the book I wrote that you talked about at the front end, you know, performing under pressure, the middle part of the book, we actually have 22 pressure solutions because, you know, every one of us is different. Not every solution will work for everyone. Some will be more effective. And so I think the key is to know, okay, what is pressure for me? How does it show up? And then what are, you know, some of the strategies that can be helpful for me, particularly for me, because again, as I say, and, and this is true of all the different athletes or business people we work with, everyone has a strategy that kind of works for them. And so, so I would say, you know, you've got to build your self-awareness to start to know yourself and then to know what strategy best works. Right. So let's talk about the book, of course. There's a lot of um, great material inside of it, and I'm curious to find out on a very personal level, let's say if you're managing a home and you're the leader of your home, what aspect would you share would be a good takeaway from the book, like a homemaker who sometimes isn't valued where the world is concerned that you are a leader of your household? Yeah, I think that's a great, great question. I would say this, 
as I say to parents, don't worry that your child doesn't always listen to you. Worry that they're constantly watching you. And to me, <laughs> we are walking models um, in our home. And so, um, so much of our child's behavior, our children's behavior is driven by, and not what we say, but, but what our actions, what our behaviors are. And they're going to model those behaviors. And in 20 years, we're going to see those, that modeling of our behavior. I have three children, 22, 19, and 16. And I wish 10 years ago I would have trusted more that they were watching my behaviors and not gotten frustrated when they weren't listening to what I was saying because I see their behaviors now. And I think, gosh, I wish I would have trusted a bit more. So I would say, you know, to homemakers or anyone in the home who's a leader, trust. Trust that they're watching you and and really work on being your best self. And worry a little less that they're not exactly listening to everything you say. Well, we never did when we were kids. Did we really listen to everything our parents said? We were really, really looking at them. We were. We were watching them. Yeah, that's so true. JP, that's great. Let's take a a little journey with your life in Asia. You spent uh, parts of, I think you spent like two years almost in a monastery in Asia. What insights and tools did this experience provide that you now use in your work? Sure. So, you know, it was parts of two years, to to be clear, but uh, not a full two years. But but I'll say this. I went there as a seeker, you know, brought up Roman Catholic, studied some world religion in my undergrad, not a, a full degree, but just some courses, and I was interested. And so went to Asia, found myself in a Buddhist monastery in Thailand, and was, I mean, fair to say blown away by this internal technology. How can we come to understand the mind? And for anyone who's done a long retreat, they'll understand what I mean by this. But for those who haven't, you know, the idea is, I'll, I'll describe the situation. You're in a monastery, you're, you're getting up early, you know, 3.30 a.m., and you literally meditate from 4 p.m., Oh, sorry, 4 a.m. rather, to, I don't even remember now, but let's say 8 or 9 p.m., maybe not even 8 or 9 p.m., maybe, yeah, 8 or 9 p.m., we'll call it. And the idea, though, is that you get up and you do a 45 or one-hour sitting meditation, and then you do a one-hour walking meditation, and then sitting, and then walking, and sitting, and then walking, and you do that literally all day. You get, you know, you eat, and in the evening there can be a talk from one of the teachers. But essentially, you're just kind of, you know, doing this Buddhist meditation all day for many days in a row. And the idea is for you to try to understand, you know, the mind a little bit better. And, and I mean, you you know this, and I think your listeners will know this because of some of the great guests you've had in the past. But for me, I think the most powerful part was to really start to see that there was this experience of, let's say, sitting meditation or walking meditation, and really I'll, I'll kind of send, uh, kind of really focus on a moment. In any moment, there was what's actually happening. Okay, I'm sitting. There's physical sensations. There's all these different stimuli in that moment. But what was something that just really opened my mind was, Yes, there's the sensation of what's happening in the moment, but then there's this whole story that we add on top, that we layer on top. I was not aware of that. I think for a lot of people who have not meditated, they wouldn't know this. And when you 
know this, not that I'm any great being now because I know this, but boy, what an insight that is that we have this whole layer of story on top of just the experience. And meditation for me is starting to see that there's a space between the actual experience of whatever's going on in this moment, like this podcast, this conversation, and the story we tell ourselves about it. And if we can get better at identifying, seeing that we have the story, and knowing that we don't have to believe the whole story, we can check it for accuracy. We can check our thoughts for accuracy. That is freedom. And so for me, yeah. that, that those long retreats, and I still do long retreats. I just finished a 10-day silent meditation retreat about a month, three weeks ago, a month ago. And I mean, again, it's this reminder of, wow, there's our experience. And then there's this layer of story. And if we can open that space up a little bit, it means that we're not driven by our habitual thoughts, our habitual stories, and our habitual reactions. And so that to me was probably, I mean, there's probably, there's a lot more, I suppose, but that's the thing that now, as you ask the question, that's what grabs me, maybe first and foremost, about that experience. Isn't it interesting how you can dedicate your life to something that seems so simple that ends up to be so large? You know, and sometimes you come back into the world and, you know, you're moving mountains, you're physically doing things, you know it's all about you, and sometimes inside you end up feeling so small. And there is something profound about living from inside out. I'm with you on that meditation and living experience. I don't know if I can, even though I do wake up every morning at 3.30. <laughs> and I have a regular routine. Our teaching's called the Merle at 6 and breakfast at 9. And I like the timetable that I'm in because in between those moments is where like a lot of the work is also taking place. But I'm a firm believer mm-hmm, sure. in um, being very active in your spiritual growth or being very active while you're mindful. I respect individuals who can go away in a cave and live away from the concrete jungle. But, uh, but for me, I have found it the most provocative, profound tool to be in the concrete jungle and being able to maintain a mindful state and still go in the ups and downs and the ins and outs of the stories get in our way sometimes because it does happen. Sure. So I want to look at things at a unique level for both of us here in the conversation. Technology is, it has played a very huge part in in the way that we have become as a people. Our concentration factor is less. Our tolerance level has decreased tremendously. And we don't really like to do things slowly anymore. And when I think about emotional intelligence, I do see an individual whose thinking and ways of being is sort of taste. So could you share with our listeners what is emotional intelligence and why is it more important than IQ in determining how we can actually perform higher? Sure, sure. Great question. Yeah, what's pretty clear is that there's a, a minimum that we need of IQ and technical skills to be effective. So it's not to say that IQ or tech, if, if you think of kind of three circles or three buckets, we, we do need a certain amount of, you know, brain power and IQ. Absolutely. We need a certain amount of technical skills depending on the job that we're doing, no question. But what's clear is that we need kind of a minimum threshold 
of those two qualities in order to be effective. What differentiates, however, if we're going to be effective, it's all about how do we manage our emotions in difficult moments? How do we manage our emotions when we're in communication, when we're in relationship to others? So much of work is done today as a team, working with others. And if you're not able to kind of manage your emotions, then, then you won't be effective. So let me describe the, the three parts of emotional intelligence. First, there's self-awareness, which is really understanding something about our preferences, something about our personality, something about how we show up in the world, what the things that trigger us, uniquely trigger us. And so when we can start to understand that, and then we can start to do the second part of emotional intelligence, which is emotional management. So now we understand, let's say, our triggers. Now we can actually manage our brain under pressure. Now we can take the kind of the steps necessary to kind of reach out beyond ourselves. Because, I mean, there is a lot of fear, as we've already mentioned, and that fear can stop us. It can cause us to avoid. And I'll, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But the third part is emotional connection. So self-awareness is the first part. The second part is emotional management. The third part is emotional connection. We've all been around someone who can really connect with us, who, who really truly is present. And they're present because they've, they've got self-awareness. They're present because they've, you know, got some skills of emotional management, but they also now are able to connect with us with this presence and they are able to listen and they're able to, you know, coach us. And when I say coach us, it doesn't mean like in a formal business setting, but it's somebody who really asks good questions. They really listen. They ask good follow-up questions. They have empathy and compassion. So these are the three parts of emotional intelligence. And what's important, I think, for listeners to, to really gather is that day-to-day it matters. There's no question. But it especially matters when we're under pressure or when we face those difficult situations. So the next book that I'm writing, and in fact, the podcast that I'm a host of that we're launching is called The Last 8%. And so it's going to be The Last 8% podcast, The Last 8% book. But, but these are those moments that are just a little bit more difficult. There's a little bit more pressure. And it's in those moments where we especially need our ability to manage our emotions so that we can still kind of self-soothe as we feel the fear, as we enter into that last 8% conversation that we're having with someone or a last 8% decision. So let, let me describe that a little bit more. Imagine all the listeners, this, this will resonate, I think, all the listeners, think about a conversation you need to have with somebody. It could be your spouse or partner, it could be your, your teenager, it could be your, somebody at work. What we have observed in our research is that many of us get to 85 or 90 or 92% of what we want to say to them in that conversation. But when we get to the more difficult part, what we call the last 8%, funny thing happens that other person starts to get a bit triggered because they sense, Oh, you know, they see where the conversation is going. They see that there are consequences attached to what we're about to say. They get triggered. They get emotional we get infected by their emotion, and then an interesting thing happens. As opposed to approaching that last 8%, we avoid that last 8%, and we never have the last 8% conversation. The problem is that that other person can't, you know, they, they can't read our mind. They don't know we didn't have the full conversation. And in fact, we sometimes think, oh, we had it because we talked about most of what we wanted to talk about, but we didn't. And so there's a situation where 
because we haven't managed our emotions, especially fear, or the fear of wanting, not wanting to hurt someone, we avoid that last 8%. By the way, not only do we, so it's either one of two things. We either avoid it or we approach it and we make a mess of it because, again, we, we're, we're a bit triggered. We're infected by their emotion. And so to me, this is where, for the listeners, there's the biggest opportunity. If you can learn the skill of emotional intelligence to be more effective in your last 8%, conversations or decisions or the situations you face, that's going to have a really mm-hmm. high upside for you. And so that's where there's real opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you. That was really clear. In closing, what do you think would be a final message that you would like to leave with us today regarding human potential? I think I love the way you started this conversation, which is that you love to learn. And I think I share that with you, and I think for everyone out there, this is the golden age of learning. We have podcasts and e-learning and lots of resources. I would say challenge yourself to become a student of human behavior. My favorite stat of all of our research is that high performers extract three to five times more information from the same opportunity to learn as an average performer. I'll say that again. High performers in a variety of different fields, they, they extract more. They extract three to five times more information from the same opportunity to learn. So, you know, take what you he- learn in the podcast, you know, in the different episodes of this podcast and, and take action on it. I think that's really important. And, you know, there's lots of resources, great podcasts. I mean, you know, sign up for our podcast, The Last 8%. Um, our, our website is the Institute for Health and Human Potential, which is ihhp.com but there's a whole bunch of other great resources out there free resources out there i would say that would be the the parting kind of messages be that aggressive learner be a model for all the people in your life of being an aggressive learner listen to podcasts you know go for a walk and listen to podcasts i you know what i find just doing the dishes i listen to podcasts and i'm learning mm-hmm. so it's just it's a fantastic time to be alive and to be a learner. So I think that would be the the message that I would uh, suggest to everyone. JP, thank you so very much and all the very best. Pleasure is mine. Have a great day. Same here. You too. Bye-bye. Wonderful Tools, everyone, by JP Paul Fry. And for more information, just go to his website at IHHAP. That's IHHP.com. I loved what JP said about being a parent and the leader in the home, that sometimes it's not always just what you say, but it's in the behavior that you're emanating, that your kids are actually learning from you the most. And isn't that what it is? Great leaders actually teach by mere example, not by words or given you know, directions all the time, by the way that you are. That touched my heart very much. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, in a time of great intrigue and interest in our planet, let's start to get together and do something good for humanity. I want you to save a few dates for me. On July 24th in Washington, D.C., the Ravi Shankar Movement is hosting a program called America Meditates. Yep, believe it or not, they took America Meditating. (laughs) So it's America Meditates in Washington, D.C. on July 24th. But I will be in Denver for for the Summit of Mental Health and Mental Fitness on July 23rd and 24th. You'll be able to also live stream the conversations that we're having. So 
So for more information, just go to americameditating.org website and go to our events page to get some more information on that. And meet with Unity of Washington, D.C. and a host of us, including Marianne Williamson, Michael Beckwith, myself, Brother Mithunjai from India, and the Steps of the Lincoln on August 10th for Stand Up for Humanity. There's a lot of good out there, folks. Please don't let all this negative stuff get you down. I know it can. Just turn it off and use the energy that you've got left over to do something good. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same. So let's do that. Here is Sarah McLaughlin, Instruments Repeats. Take care, everyone. I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.